and then expected them to understand ice cream. Having explained all the academic complexity. Now, if you love ice cream, you know that that's ridiculous. The whole point is to taste it. So the Bible, it's big and it's thick and it's got many authors and it was written, I don't know if you know this, it was written over thousands of years. It's, it's hugely complex. It has a cohesion that is amazing and kind of seems impossible once you get to see how cohesive it is given its many origins. But there's kind of a whole point that's like the tasting of the ice cream. And you can't teach that. If you go to somebody who's never tasted ice cream and you try to describe what it's like, it's really not possible for the person to, to really understand the taste till they taste it. Make sense? So I think, as somebody who's tasted it and gets it, like it's not about understanding the complexity. It's about this cohesion, this wonderful, simple, life-transforming truth that gets in you. So I just thought I'd say that. I like ice cream, and I love the Bible, and what I have to share today could come off like kind of some complexity and kind of academic, and I, I'm kind of bummed about that. So try to listen in between the lines. Uh, so we've got Book of Ecclesiastes that Matt's been teaching us through. I've got chapter 5 here today. Chapter 5 changes dramatically from chapter 4. And I don't know if any of you have been reading through it as we've been studying it. Uh, in chapters 1 through 4, it's in first person. It's, you know, the teacher says, I looked and I saw this and this and this. I tried this and this and this, and it was meaningless, and I noticed these things, and it was also meaningless, and it's all just chasing after the wind and trying to manage vapor. And I saw this, and it's all very first person, and he is describing things he's seen. Chapter 5, total change of tone, no mention of meaninglessness. I mean, there is in chapter 5, but in this one little section... There's a complete change of tone, and it's in second person. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near and listen, rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven, and you are on earth. So let your words be few. As, dream, as a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it, 
He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth head you in, lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger saying, My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God. Now, if I took this page from the Bible alone, I'm not getting any ice cream. It's, this is not an enjoyable passage. It's actually kind of annoying, and I want to move on to something better, right? Now, chapter 5 has kind of several different parts, and because we're going through the whole book and we're focusing on it, I'm going to read through, but I want to focus on two of those parts and let the others sort of sit there. So I'm going to keep reading. We're going to come back to the part I just read. So I'm in verse 8. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of a rich man permits him no sleep. And then he goes back to first person. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son there is nothing left for him. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he departs. He takes nothing from his labor that he can carry in his hand. This too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs. And what does he gain since he toils for the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. Then I realized that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink and to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life God has given him, for this is his lot. I don't know how someone would find satisfaction in such a lot. It's kind of a tall order. It's more like settling, it seems like. Strange verse. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy them, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. 
He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with gladness of heart. So that's chapter 5. So there's basically two things that are focused on. Riches and their meaninglessness. Now, think about riches and take it down a notch of, of depth in your mind. It's easy to pick on riches or the abstract rich person, but look into yourself. All of us here have wanted stuff from the time we were little tiny kids. In fact, little tiny kids probably want as passionately as any grown-up. Just different things. So think about what you have wanted really bad. Just sit with that for a minute. Have you ever experienced wanting something and maybe beginning to get it, or it looks like you're going to get it, or you get it, and it's not what you thought? It's not, it doesn't deliver the satisfaction that you anticipated. Or it's taken. You thought you were going to really own it, but you kind of don't. Or something that would fit with uh, this, this passage that says, one official, uh, let's see, uh, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things. For one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. So you're working in the fields, whatever that would mean for you. And you want the return, and it's kind of taken by the system of the world in some form or another. And you feel overtaxed, maybe literally, maybe figuratively. Kind of work that into the mix. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. This too is meaningless. I think we understand that, most people. I'm tempted to ask for a show of hands. I guess I won't. Uh, have you ever experienced complete satisfaction in what you have? We got one. That's cool. Have you ever experienced a near satisfaction in what you have, but not quite? Like, you can't quite get your attention off of that more that's coming, in that, and you're in that tension. And you're grateful. But you're not done. You still want. So there's something about riches, and in the context, uh, I'm going to assert, in the context of this page of the scripture, it's physical riches, stuff. Stuff made out of matter, if you will. Houses and lands and cars and boats and this sort of thing. 
So we've got a little bit about that. Before that, it talks about, at the beginning of the chapter, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Okay. We're in church. So we have some inkling of going to the house of God. Some people call a church building the house of God because it's sort of an understanding. It's not. It's, that's really not a truth. But it's an understandable echo of the ancient days of the temple from the tradition from which we come, right? Uh, so there's instructions going into the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. I don't know what the sacrifice of fools is, but it's not attractive. I kind of don't want to be one of those. So the option it gives me is listen. Oh, okay, I can do that. Those who offer the sacrifice of fools do not know what they're doing, or do not know that they are doing wrong. That's interesting. There's innocence in the guilt, almost always is. Do not be quick with your mouth, do not be hasty with your heart, to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Skipping down a little bit, where it says, talks about uh, verse 4, when you make a vow to God... Uh, why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the dreaming, and excuse me, and destroy the work of your hands? Okay, so this chapter has left us. Here's our options if we want to just live by this. We can desire riches in some form, that's things that are precious to each of us, and settle for it not being all that fulfilling and just sort of make ourselves be satisfied. And the spiritual life would be going into the house of God, whatever that would mean for us, and basically my paraphrase of this part, uh, behave ourselves lest we get in trouble. Basically, go in respectfully, stand in awe of God, go into the temple, uh, because it says, why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? So you be humble and you be good and you be a contrite worshiper, lest you get in trouble. And that's what this chapter gives us. And I probably don't sound much like a preacher when I say this, but this really sucks. This is awful. Is anyone with me? This is not attractive. I have no, I do not find it in my soul to be that kind of worshiper, to, to go to God as if I'm going to get in trouble if I don't go to him properly. It says he is in heaven and I am on earth. He is distant. He's not a friend. If I may be so bold, and I'm taking a risk here, but the attitude toward God in this passage is identical to the attitude toward all of the idols of all the idol worshippers in the surrounding lands at this time. Appease them lest you get in trouble. There's nothing special about that.
So, thank you. We're done. No. Uh, so, as somebody who loves the Bible, and I do, I really do, I am compelled to turn some pages to see what else goes with this that makes sense of it. Backing up in chapter 3, and Matt has referenced this passage a couple of times as well, uh, chapter 3 in Ecclesiastes, uh, that's the chapter where, that's the chapter that's the folk song, right? There's a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot, a time to kill and a time to heal, etc., etc. Beautiful poetry. Uh, and after all that, it says, what does the worker gain from his toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on men. That's very Ecclesiastes. It goes back to the same flavor. Then there's one verse stuck in there that's anomalous in the entire book, in my opinion. It says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of mankind. Yet they cannot fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. What God has done from the beginning to the end is sort of a picture of eternity. So it says God has set eternity in our hearts, and we don't understand it. Right after it says he has made everything beautiful in its time. Just the word beautiful kind of is a misfit in Ecclesiastes. It doesn't go with the word meaningless. If you have the slightest appreciation for beauty, it is not meaningless at all. In fact, the pursuit of riches is trying, usually, I think, trying to get at the feelings that beauty gives us, this wonderful place. So let's, I was going to say let's stop, but you guys are stopped already. So while we're stopped, let's examine that. If God put eternity in our hearts, wouldn't we know that? That doesn't seem like something you should take a preacher's word for. You should experience something, perhaps something unique to you and the way you are. So if you, if you step aside from the things you want, just in your imagination for a moment, there's this life, you're, you're probably in a pursuit of something, possibly many somethings, career-wise, family-wise, everything. Imagine setting that aside for a minute, just in the solitude of your own heart, and kind of open up a space that if there was something eternal in there, something that cannot die, something that, is, that cannot be damaged, something that is celestial, that if it's there, open up that space so you could maybe feel it. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of humanity yet they cannot fathom it. I'm going to ask you to sit with that just for a moment in silence. Can you detect the eternal part of yourself? Now, for some of you, you don't have to try. You live there. And for others, perhaps it's like a brand new thought. And everyone's somewhere in between, perhaps. If we are eternal spirits. There's a phrase I like. I'm sure you've heard it. I've said it before. Uh... You are not a physical being having a spiritual experience. You are a spirit having a physical experience. I like that sense of things. That the entire lifetime of this body isn't 
our spiritual lifetime. They're two different things. So the author, the teacher in Ecclesiastes, tells us how to go into the house of God. Fast forward about almost a thousand years, well over 900 years into that future, future of, from then, into the time of Jesus. And I'm going to read a little bit from John 4. Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by Jacob's well. It was about the sixth hour. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. So he was by himself. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would give you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself? as did also his sons and his flocks and herds. And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Physical riches, perhaps? But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Spiritual riches, perhaps. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The If I can back up to the beginning, the tasting of the ice cream is the stepping into eternal life, consciously, experientially. To get away from the, this is my life in this world, and then I'm going to die and go to heaven. It's just not enough of a, it's not a compelling enough message, because we view heaven as very vague, most of us. But if the life we're living right now is eternal already, you're living a forever life right now, in this routine that you're in. That starts to be compelling. It's also difficult to believe for many people. It starts to sound like a fantasy. And there's the tension. It will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't have to get thirsty and come here and draw from the well every day. And he told her, Go call your husband and come back. So here she has a mystical experience that... God speaks to her, uh, that's coming right up here. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. <coughs> Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Really? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem i.e. Mount Zion, the temple, Ecclesiastes. When you go into the temple, when you go to the house of God, this is where you be respectful to God. Jesus is saying, or she's saying, that's what you guys teach. We have a different thing. And Jesus says, believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. That's another story. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. 
God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said, I know that Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. How right she is. She just doesn't know she's sitting on that moment. Then Jesus declared, I who speak to you am he. So, either Ecclesiastes is true, and God is, on, God is in heaven and you are on earth, and he's distant, or John 4 is true. And God, in Christ, is sitting next to this random woman, present, in relationship, inviting her into, into knowing him. I'm going to read another chapter. And I'm going to, hopefully I can put all this together. This is from, remember Peter, the disciple? Now, I love Peter, and I, I know he's a real guy, and I don't want to insult him. But if ever there was a guy who could get in trouble with his mouth, like the way you don't enter the house of God, like he might, he might be one of those, right? But he learned a lot. He said yes to tasting to stepping into that eternal space and to widen his, his experience of God big time. And he writes this letter to us. Seriously, it says at the beginning, I'm going to skip a few lines, but it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the elect, strangers scattered throughout the world. I think we qualify. It says, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold, earthly riches, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, the meaningless emptiness. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, the description of a perfect ancient Jewish sacrifice. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him so that your faith and hope are in God. Also a very different picture than God is in heaven and you are on earth. Behave yourself lest you get in trouble. Very different picture. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again. Referencing teaching of Jesus to being born of the Spirit, not of perishable seed, physical, but of imperishable, spiritual, through the living and enduring Word of God. For, quote, all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the Word that was preached to you. Let's look back at Ecclesiastes 5 for just a second. Back to the beginning of the chapter about going into the house of God. God, guard your steps when you go into the house of God. Go near and listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not haste, be hasty with your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven. You are on earth. So let your words be few. Just want to throw that in there. I'm going to continue with Peter in chapter 2. Rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, all hypocrisy, and envy, and slander of every kind. Do you notice what those are? Those are relational things. 
symptoms of terrible relationships. Malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good, there is something to taste that is good. It's different than just behave yourself lest you get in trouble. It can be fully stepped into and experienced. Taste that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone... Well, this is interesting. Jesus said there will come a time when it's not about the temple on Mount Zion, but about spirit and in truth. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God, and precious to him, you also, like living stones are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Oh, that's temple talk. But it's spiritual, and it's not in any particular location. A holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay in Zion a stone, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. So the temple is us. The living stones built up into an eternal spiritual temple of God. You are, we are, those stones. This is to be entirely experienced in our routine of life. This entering into the house of God has nothing to do with coming into a building like this. I mean, it's connected, but... It's not the point. The point is, if I may paraphrase Ecclesiastes 5 slightly, guard your steps when you go into relationships in God. When you step into the other living stones that are the spiritual temple. When you relate to one another, the people in whom God lives among, go near and listen rather than offering the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God, for God is among us, right in front of us, as close as each other. And that's not what Ecclesiastes said, but I think it's what the Bible says, if you put it all together. So the takeaway from this, in my view, it kind of starts with a fork in the road, maybe, for, for a lot of people. Either you are eternal, and that's just, that's just real. That's just what it is. And all of the riches and the behavior of, of this temporal, physical world are either just something to enjoy, something to learn from, something to experience as a great gift, or they're a distraction, but you're eternal. So it, either that's the whole life, or you're a spirit, a celestial being created in the image of God that's in this temporary physical state. Sorry, I said the takeaway is, and then I backed up. The takeaway is, approach each other as if God lives in each other. You are the temple of God, built up as living stones. And this is where I find myself, like, you, you either taste it or you don't. So if this feels kind of academic and kind of like I've just dissected a bunch of biblical ingredients and laid them out there and it's a little boring, I would like you to take note of that and 
go to God as we share communion with each other, like the woman sitting at the well, and ask, God, that eternity that you set in my heart, touch it with something I can taste and something that I feel that I can take with me. This beautiful symbol of the bread and the cup uh, always takes us back to Jesus, who is sort of the pinnacle of grace and truth and, and understanding and smart head and a rich heart, a worthy master that is there as our example. And he decided to break himself into pieces and pass himself out among us and share his messianic wonder so that the body of Christ moved from being one individual to thousands. And we participate in that. And God is indeed present and among us. Uh, I'm going to pray for a second. God, thank you for these moments. Thank you for the truth that you teach, teach us, the, the many lessons in life that we learn or don't. I pray that you would help us to be aware of our spiritual hunger and to ask you to feed us. If I've said anything this morning that is meaningless, I pray that it would just blow away like old leaves and be forgotten. And if there's something helpful, I pray that you would give it roots and life. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.